Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October the 28th, 2019. This is episode 2539 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Monday. That's usually a listener feedback show. We're going to change things up a little bit this week. I want to throw you some change-up pitches. For a couple reasons. One, I just think that's a good thing to do from time to time. If we don't change things up once in a while, everything falls into a rut. By changing things up from time to time, we keep people on their toes, including myself, your host, who needs to stay on my toes to keep this show entertaining and educational. Uh, the other thing is every once in a while, I feel we need to kind of do a throwback as well. So we're going to do a change-up and a throwback in the same uh, go. We're going to talk about basic prepping questions today. And I think that... This will be a great show for you if you've been doing this for as long as this show's been here and longer. Uh, because what it makes me think of is back when I was in school and we would have a bad game, what the coach would say is we're going to work on fundamentals. And I think if you go into any you know professional sports team, that when they have a really bad game, you know may, they might have been playing football since they were in Pop Warner, But they go back to fundamentals, and fundamentals are the core that you base everything you do on, so that's just good for everybody. Number two, I want shows that are approachable to new people. I want ones you can share with people that have no idea what the hell's going on and no idea why the hell you should prepare and still think that everybody that's a prepper is a doomsday-type prepper from TV. So they can learn that this stuff is just the common-sense things that our grandparents did, and we should do it too. So we're kind of putting all that together. We'll drive into that and drive in, dive into that in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today number one today is Bulk Ammo. Bulk Ammo is where I get my ammo. That's where I think you should get yours too. And the reason is I save money and I don't have to leave my house to get my ammo, and it comes here really, really fast. I mean, what the heck else do you want? I go down to the sporting goods store. And I got to deal with people down there going, are you sure this is what you want? Well, it's what I got off the shelf. We're going to Walmart. Is this is this for a handgun or a rifle? Well, why? Because if it's for a handgun, we can't sell it to you today or whatever. Just none of the nonsense. I want this stuff here. Send it to my house. Great shipping, great service, great pricing, big selection. Find it all at BulkAmmo.com. Next up, you know, ammo is the uh, the other precious metal, copper, jacket, and lead. But let's not forget the primary precious metal, silver and gold. And I've been recommending that you consider 10%, maybe 5%, somewhere in that neighborhood of 5% to 10% of your net wealth in silver and gold. For over 11 years, I've been making that recommendation. And there's a lot of reasons for it. But here's the easy ones. Number one, silver and gold have a history in thousands of years of being used as money. If you look back, let's say, 200 years... Most of the currencies in existence today are not currencies that were in existence 200 years ago. They're gone. But silver and gold, you can go back 3,000, 4,000 years, and they're still here. So they have that track record, too. They're anonymous forms of wealth. If you want to leave silver and gold behind to your heirs, you can just hand it to them long before you kick off, and that way you can see their face when they have that in, that part of their inheritance from you. If you want to make a deal with somebody and you want to pay them in silver and gold, it's between me, you, or we stay down here in Texas, me, you, and the fence post. So it's an anonymous way to transfer wealth with, a, with just a huge store of value, and it's what I call your wealth insurance policy. 
If everything goes to shit, you know you still have that. And it will be, I promise you. When you start stacking silver and gold, it's interesting. It's the last money you'll ever spend. That means if you ever really need it, it'll still be there. Check out JM Bullion because they give you a discount. They ship everything for free, and they support this show. You only get the discount if you're a member, by the way. You can learn more about that by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on member and consider becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support the Brigade, and you will get discounts to places like JM Bullion and Bulk Ammo and about 70 other companies that will pay for your membership while you support the show that you listen to here at the Survival Podcast. And with that, let's get on into it today. Um, I'm basically going to be doing a self-interview today. Like if somebody said, Jack, I want to interview you on the basics of prepping, but you're so good at this, write me 12 questions and send them to me, and I'll ask you those questions. This would be, you know... One example, I could, I'd probably come up with 20 different ways of doing this, but this would be one example of the way I would get on a place where maybe they don't really talk about preparedness a lot, but they're interested in it, they want to bring it to their audience, and, and I'd say, here, ask me this stuff, and it'd be softball questions. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the question and give you the answers like I am the host and I am the guest at the same time today. Question number one, and this is one that I, I, I hear from a lot of people when I tell them what I do. Why should I bother to prep? Is it, it is safe where I live. Nothing ever happens here. And my response to that would be multiple. But my first response is everybody who's ever lived through some kind of real problem thought that before the problem happened. And this is why you see big spikes, spikes in interest about prepping, backup power, bugging out, whatever, whenever it's a big disaster and it puts people in touch with it. The person that says it's safe where I live and nothing ever happens here knows they're lying when they say it. What we're talking about there is perception bias and confirmation bias. It's uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable to look at your life and think, everything I have could be lost in a second, so we don't want to do it. The same reason people don't want to go to the doctor, because they might tell you something you don't want to hear. And so we all know that the concept that nothing ever happens where I live is a lie. Wherever you live in the world, I promise you, there is some form of natural disaster or man-made disaster that can occur. When I was a little kid, we lived in Jacksonville, Florida, where you think a hurricane would be the problem. It was nowhere near hurricane season. And next thing I know, the, the Duval County sheriffs were, were pounding on every door in the apartment complex we lived in and telling us all to get out of there because there was a leak uh, at a, a sewer treatment plant just up the road from us uh, of chlorine gas. And... You know, looking back at it, I don't know if we really needed to evacuate, but we did. And, it, you know, that's just an example of something that no one ever even thought about. Look at California right now. we got wildfires everywhere, people losing everything they had. Like, things go wrong on a big level. But preparedness is really about lifestyle redundancy. I had a lady cutting my hair this weekend. I should say cutting my hairs. I had them all cut. And uh, she, she asked me what I did, and I started telling her, and she asked us some questions about it. I said, well, you know, if I had to sum this all up, what I'd really say we do is lifestyle design. And the, the way that you actually do lifestyle design instead of trying to sell books about lifestyle design is you, you come up with a basic concept that works for everybody. And the way this concept works for everybody is you think about all the aspects of your life, and then you think about anything that could put you off track. Losing a job, getting sick, having a loved one get sick, having a house fire. And you'll start to realize right away that most of those things are actually things that affect just you and your, your family. They're smaller disasters, but they're big for you. And then you think about what would I do if, 
And then you build plan and redundancy into your life so that if those things go wrong, you don't say, what do I do now? You say, when this happens, I'm going to do this. And if, if most people would do that, then they could actually say, you know, it's pretty safe where I live because they would have already put in place the plan. Because the plan is more important than the stuff. Knowing what you're going to do. There's been people who have had the ability to save their home as far as having all the resources they needed, but their home burned to the ground because they didn't know what to do. There's people that would have been much better off if they, had, if they had just left at half hour before they did, but they had no plan to leave, so they weren't sure what to do. There are people that watched a person die in front of them that simple first aid could have saved a life, but they didn't know what to do. They might have even sort of kind of known what to do, but they panicked because they didn't have a plan. By running scenarios in our minds of what could go wrong and putting systems and plans and things in place, So that if those goes wrong, we build resiliency in our lives. The reason you should prepare is so that your life goes as good as possible for yourself. You should prep because it's in your self-interest to do so. So next, why should we start telling the ant and grasshopper story to our kids again? I mean, when I talk about ant and grasshopper, people kind of look at me a little bit sideways and I really do believe this is a story we should be telling again. So I'm going to tell it, you know, the short version of it today anyway. But I want to kind of give you, you know, where does this come from in, in my perspective? When I was a little bitty kid, and I mean little bitty kid, you know, smaller than a puppy, <laughs> um, ears very wet, like that long ago. My grandparents that lived in Pennsylvania, they were, they were first generation Ukrainian immigrants. They had their little house. The house had been built in the 1800s. My grandfather bought it just before the Great Depression for like, oh, I think like $800. I think her house payment was like $27 or something like that, he told me. Um, they ended up being able to keep their house through the Depression. He got drafted in World War II, left. I think by the time he got back from World War II, they had paid the house off. Um, they might have bought it in the recession. I'm not even sure. Uh, but... That's how old that place was and how far back everything went. So I'm, you know, a little kid in the early 80s and late 70s, and I would go up and visit them for the summer. And that's where I learned about gardening and hunting and fishing and all that stuff from my grandfather and my great uncles. And he would sit out on the porch on Sunday after church, and he would listen to the AM radio play polka music, which I wasn't really into. And trying to take care of a grandkid that he knew wasn't really going to sit there and listen to just polka music, he'd turn the radio down and he'd tell me stories. And one of the stories he would tell me is the ant and the grasshopper. And I'll tell you, my other grandparents told me this story. And every kid I knew grew up with grandparents who told them the story. And today, I don't, I've, I've had grown-ass people look at me and don't know the story of the, grass and the, gra uh, the, uh, the grasshopper and the ant. So here's the basic story. The basic quick version of the story is the grasshopper fiddled and farted around all day and played. He ate his grass and did just enough to get by every day. And he noticed that his, his friend, the ant, worked his ass off. And the ant was always taking extra food, putting it down in the holes in the ground, and he just worked every day. Worked so hard, and the grasshopper played. And the, and the grasshopper said to the ant, Ant, what's wrong with you? Why don't you ever play? And he said, Grasshopper, winter is coming. It always comes. Sooner or later, winter always comes. And it will be here before you know it. And you won't have anything, and you're going to freeze, and you're going to starve. And the grasshopper mocked the ant. And one day, the chill came in the air, and the leaves started to turn, and there was a little less grass to eat. And the grasshopper still managed to get by for a while, even though the mornings and the evenings were pretty cold. 
And then all of a sudden, snow started flying, and there was no grass, and there was nothing to eat, and he was shivering. And the ant, all the ant's family went down in their hole and closed everything up and buckled down for the winter. And the modern version of the story, the ant lets the grasshopper in the hole and takes care of him, and the grasshopper learns his lesson. It's not the original story, guys. Tell your kids the story. The ant tells the grasshopper to go screw, and the grasshopper freezes to death. And you know what probably happened on a little bit of a warm winter's day? The ants came out, chopped the grasshopper up in little pieces, took them down the hole and ate them because ants eat grasshoppers. That's the real lesson here. And it's not in the nature of the grasshopper to become an ant. And it's not in the nature of the ant to become a grasshopper. But we're higher than both of those species. We can think a little bit better. In the end, it's just a fable from Aesop. We actually have the ability, and we are the only species we know of the only one that can literally think ahead. The squirrel stores a nut because it's in its instincts. It's not really planning it out. We have the ability to consider anything that could go wrong and be good ants and be prepared for whatever type of winter comes our way. So I really encourage you to start telling that story to your kids again, and maybe they'll start valuing things, and it won't, they won't, you won't have to have somebody like me answer all these questions just so people understand that they should be prepared. And it made me realize when we were doing this, I skipped our quote of the day today, and I don't want to skip it, so I'm going to back up and do our quote of the day before I go on to question three. Uh, our, our, question, or our quote of the day today is from Edwards Deming, who said, Learning is not compulsory, neither is survival. <laughs> you know, we talk about compulsory education. In this country. In other words, kids are required to go to school or whatever. You can make education compulsory. You can make people go to a place and be talked to. You can't make them learn. In the words of Ron White, you can't fix stupid. right? You can cure ignorance, but you can't fix stupid. So there's a couple things in this quote. Number one is that we, we believe that we're the most educated, gener we have the most educated people in the history of the world today. Education does not equal people that actually have learned something, right? So there, you can make somebody be educated. You can't make them learn. But the other side of that is you don't get any guarantees in life. You can refuse to learn. You can cling to ignorance, but it may really bite you in the ass like the grasshopper in the end. So maybe it's good I waited on that. Let's go on to question number uh Three would be from the fire, forest fires currently going on in California to recent flooding to third world disasters. What is the commonality that all these disasters have? What 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 is the thing that is universal about them? Because we can think about stuff like the Haitian earthquake, one of the, the most horrible disasters ever to occur. And the earthquake wasn't the problem. All the buildings that fell on top of people, the festering cesspools and Uh, the spreading of disease and, and, and death through diarrhea was the main way people died because they couldn't get clean water. Uh, to recent things now, we're like, you know, we're in a first world nation in the United States. California is almost a first world nation. Uh, and people having to evacuate because of fires burning down their houses. And it seems very, very different to be an impoverished Haitian living in a cinder block shack versus a well-to-do Californian living in a house out on the outskirts of L.A. But the disaster is the equalizer, and that's the commonality. And in the end, what people need in a disaster, they need food, they need water, they need comfort items, and they need medicine. 
Those things are universally what people most, it's not the only thing they need, it's the things they most need. And wherever they're setting up a shelter or they're asking people to donate supplies or they're spending money that was donated to buy supplies, they're providing food, water, medicine, and comfort items. 90% of the effort goes to those four things. And what we take from that is, one, that's obviously a place we should focus a lot of our efforts in making sure we provide our own redundancy. But, two, it should go back to that first question of why should I bother Because the universe doesn't give a shit how important you think you are. When you don't have a place to live because your house is burning down, when you don't have food to eat and your stomach's empty, when you don't have clean water to drink and you are left with the choice to drink water that will make you sick or dehydrate and die, you're as equal to that Haitian peasant or that person in the, in the, in the Horn of Africa or that person on a rooftop in South Texas. We're all equal. We're all humans. We all need the same things to stay alive. We all have the same things we most fear. And we all have the intellect to deal with the resources we do have before there's a problem to think about what to do about it in case one comes up. And so I think we all have a responsibility to be as prepared as we can. And when we become parents and grandparents, etc., I think that our responsibility level goes up. A lot of people think they're good parents because, well, I, I, you know, I make sure my kids have what they need. I make sure they eat every day. I make sure they do their homework. And, and that's great. And I'm glad you do that. But part of your responsibility is to think about, well, what if I'm not here? Well, who will take care of them if I die? And that's why we have things like life insurance. But you should also think about how do I put myself in a position where I never have to take food out of my child's mouth to feed myself? so that I can go to work and make more money and hopefully feed them tomorrow. We have a massive responsibility when we choose to create life and bring children into this world to think beyond tomorrow, to think beyond next week, to think beyond, I'll always have a job, to think beyond, it's safe, nothing will ever go wrong. And when we look at the totality of disaster across the world from the third world shithole to right in our own backyard, that commonality is the people that are least prepared suffer the most, and the people that don't prepare have children that suffer the most. And that's just a reality. And that leads us to our next question when we start thinking about that. What are our six primary survival needs, and how do we go about seeing to them? And because I could do an entire show on just those six things, I could do an entire show on one of those things that I have, I'm going to be brief with it today because today is more about how to think so that you do what you can with what you have. Number one is food. You got to have food. If you go long enough without food, you starve. And when you don't have food and you need it, you also start to make bad decisions about how you're going to live. And then it causes a lot of other problems. It spirals to a lot of other problems. So how do we solve the food problem? The easiest thing we can do is while food's available, store it. That's a two-word answer to solving the food problem. Store it. And taking a little further, store what you eat and eat what you store. So make sure that you have the ability to go at least a couple weeks without going to the grocery store, and then you will be able to use the food you have in the time of short to figure out what to do next. And it's a, it's a funny thing. Food's actually a problem that, in, especially in this country, even in some of the worst of circumstances, it's actually a fairly easy problem to solve. But if you don't have any food, 
today, or if you have food today but you know you're not going to have food tomorrow and your kids are going to go hungry, it gets really complicated really fast. So store food. Number two is water. Water is the thing that we can do without for the, about the least amount of time other than air. Right? Air is a really important thing. I, if I put my hand over your mouth and nose and don't let you breathe, you're not going to go very long before you asphyxiate and die. But we can go a long time without food, honestly. It's something we panic over long before we should. But water, you know, about three days and you're looking at death. And in, in many situations that are commensurate with disasters like high heat and high, high energy use, you can end up on your back dead in less than a day without being able to rehydrate. Solution to water, same two words as, as, as food, store it. Stephen Harris had a thing recently. He built like a bench. It was basically layers of two-liter soda bottles and pieces of plywood. And if that's what you want to do, fine. I don't care how you store water. Store water. Store water and a way to purify it. And we need about a gallon of water per person a day just to drink. We need another couple gallons for sanitation. I mean, that's your bare minimum is about three gallons a day per person. That's a lot of water, and it adds up really fast, and it's heavy and bulky. Now, the reason I like storing in... The two-liter soda bottles. I like storing in like the one-gallon Arizona iced tea and the one-gallon uh, apple juice jugs and stuff like that. It's portable. If I have a neighbor that could use some water, I can hand them two gallons of water and they can just walk off with it. 16 pounds, eight in each hand. No problem. If I need to bug out, I can take some of that with me. So, you know, big storage containers like poly, uh, poly barrels and stuff like that, 50-gallon barrels, that's great. It's a wonderful thing to have, but you're not going to pick up a 50-gallon barrel of water on your shoulder and pitch it in the back of your truck. Store water right now is the most available, life-sustaining uh, resource you have. Like it's, a, it's abundant everywhere. And the only reason people end up you know, bashing a store that puts a price on a case of water that seems exorbitant, which is the same price they charge every day for a single bottle, You know, when Best Buy got a bad rap during one of the hurricanes because they were charging like $40 a case for water, well, they charge like $1.80 because they don't sell water. They're Best Buy. But they have little refrigerators in the front. They sell it for like $1.83 a bottle. It was the ex All they did was put the price, the price of a bottle times the number of bottles in the case, put it on the case, and suddenly they're Satan. The only reason people think that way is because they don't store water while you can turn the faucet on and it comes out. If you don't store water, you literally are a completely irresponsible adult if you have kids in your home. There's no excuse. And again, free storage containers. One gallon heavy-duty beverage containers or two-liter heavy-duty beverage containers. They're designed to store high-acid or high-pressure uh, beverages while they're being transported with a lot of vibration. In other words, it's very strong plastic. You know the one-gallon milk jugs that they put water in? Don't use those. I've seen those just sit in a closet and nothing happened to them. You open up the closet, the floor's wet, and they're empty. They rupture and they fail. Get the heavy-duty plastic. I don't drink soda. I don't drink apple juice. I do not drink Arizona iced tea. But I, I know people who do, and you do too. So if you don't drink that stuff, just talk to people that use two-liter soda bottles and what have you and say, hey, can you do me a favor and save these bottles for me? I'll come by and pick them up you know, once a week, once a month, whatever, and store that until you run out of space to store it or you need, other, you need space to store other things. Store water. Next, energy. Here's my three 
word answer to how do we see to our energy needs. Back it up. Just like you do with computer data, back it up. Have ways to provide the power that you need for yourself, um, whether it be heat or electricity or any form of energy. Have ways to produce that for yourself when your power grid is down. You can talk about solar panels and battery backups and all that other stuff, and that's all great. It's fairly advanced, though. This is my belief. One of the first things people should buy when it comes to having at least some energy backup is a good quality 800-watt inverter and then get a box like a, like, a, like the no, no, they look like milk crates, but they're new now, and store some extension cords and some three-way splitters and some chargers to charge AA and AAA batteries and some rechargeable AAA and AA batteries. And get yourself a couple strings of LED white Christmas lights because they're low draw. And then you can pull, take your car, start it up, clamp that inverter on it, run extension cords in your house, and at least you can have light charged batteries. And if you don't try to do too much at once, most of you will find you can probably run your refrigerator for a few hours at a time off of your car while it idles with the inverter on it. That's step one. But step two, and I think is a the, the best preparedness step that I've ever made as far as number of times it's paid off for me, is a good quality generator. I have a 7,500-watt Troy-built generator. I think I paid like 500 bucks for sale when it was on for sale at, at Lowe's. It has saved my ass so many times. And I have a lot of energy requirements here that a lot of you won't have. I have a lot of ponds and stuff that run pumps and all. Fish will die if they go for more than a day. Having a generator and gasoline for it is the number one thing that you can do and a source of backup heat. Here in the south, where you can't find a lot of kerosene, I recommend a propane heater like the Big Buddy heater and at least three or four of the grill-sized gas tanks of propane. If you live where you can get uh, kerosene, a good quality or two kerosene heater and enough fuel for those. Those are your easiest, best bang for the buck energy backups you can have. And you'll find if you can charge batteries, keep your freezer from defrosting, get information on the TV, charge up your, your devices, etc., you're good. So you also want to store gas for your cars. I recommend 60 gallons per vehicle if you have a diesel and a gas, then 60 diesel and 60 gas. Buy a can at a time, write a number on it, the number of the month you're in. If you're in October right now, going to November, go ahead and start November, write 11 on the can with a Sharpie. Fill it up with gasoline, throw some stable in it, stick it in your garage. Next month, buy another can, write a 12 on it. Go faster if you want to, but it's like your minimum speed. Sends, spent, this way you spread out the energy over time or the, the cost over time. Then in January, put a 1 on it. When you get back to October or November, it's November, I got a can. My 11 can is full. I now have 60 gallons of gas, one for every month, five gallons a month, see? Take that 11 can, when you're ready to go get gas, dump it in your vehicle, take it with you, fill it up, bring it back, and stick it in place. Your gas is never more than a year old. You have 60 gallons of gas, you have two vehicles, you have 120 gallons of gas. Is that too much? Maybe. You decide what works for you, but 60 minimum. Now you can run the vehicle, and you can run the generator. There's almost nothing you can't get through short of the end of the world as we know it with that type of backup. And it is, you will use it, it will pay for itself, and the first time you use it, you'll be like, this is awesome. Guys, gals that are trying to convince your spouse to get on board with this, this is the first place to go. Food, water, and energy. Get a generator, get fuel for it. When the power goes out, turn the generator on. 
you can get like a transfer switch and standby backup and all that if you want to, a good assortment of uh, AC uh, extension cords and splitters, and you just run cords wherever you need them in the house. Get yourself a, if you live in a place where it gets really, really hot, get yourself an inexpensive, high-efficiency window air conditioning unit, and when it's really hot out in the summer and your power's out, just take one room, Close the door, put the air conditioner in that window, run that air conditioner. Have one room that people can relax in that's actually comfortable, and no one will ever tell you you're crazy for wanting to prep again just from that. Between saving the food in the freezer and being able to be cool and comfortable or being able to be warm in the winter, with a, again, you can take a single room and heat it with a portable heater. Make sure you follow protocol so you don't suffocate yourself, obviously. But those are the three places to go. Next is security. Security is based on... Three primary things, gear, procedure, and protocol. Gear is things like having a gun, means of self-defense. Also, gear is things like locks for your home, alarm systems, etc. Procedure and protocol are twins. Not twins, they're more like fraternal twins, right? They're not the same, like boy and girl twins. Procedure is how we do a thing. Protocol is the procedures we implement in a given situation. So what do I mean by that? Procedure is, when I go to the gas station and I'm pumping gas, I don't have my earbuds in and I'm not paying attention to lollygagging like we used to say in the military. So somebody can come up behind me and shiv me in my back with a screwdriver and take my wallet right when I've just pulled it out because I'm not paying attention to what's going on. Because the guy that wants to do that and you think it's a safe place because it looks safe but you stopped on the side of the highway because you needed gas and you'd never been there before and you didn't know where you were, he's looking for the person doing that. That is an example of a procedure, a security procedure. We always follow that procedure. Security is we always lock the door of the house. Security is we always lock the gate. Security is we always close the gate. Security is, procedure is, whenever we leave the house, if we have an alarm system, we turn it on, or why do we have it? That's procedure. Protocol is something has occurred that is out of the normal, and therefore our procedures go up a level. There's rioting and looting going on in our area. In addition to all of our normal procedures, if anybody goes outside, they don't go alone. I know it's three neighborhoods over where it's happening, but you have no idea what it's going to So now we have protocol. Procedure is we lock the doors of the house at night. Protocol is what we do when we hear a bump outside. And that's as far as I'll go with that for right now. But that's, that's security. You make sure you have the stuff that you need whether it's defensive tools, whether it's locks, what have you, security screens, whatever, and then you have the procedure you follow every day and the protocol when things are out of the normal. And that'll, again, this stuff is not everything, but it covers 90 to 95% of what you'll ever deal with. Shelter, <laughs> simple, maintain it and have a plan to bug out. Take care of your home, so your home will take care of you. Don't overbuy so you don't get, you know, one way you can lose your home is be foreclosed on. So don't overbuy. Don't put your don't make yourself house poor. Keep your debt level low. But take care of your house. If something goes wrong in your house, fix it as quickly as possible. If you have a leak in your roof, fix that shit now before it costs you a fortune. If you live in a place where there's storms, then consider things like, you know, storm windows or uh, storm shutters, etc. Have what you need to keep your home buttoned down in a crisis as best as you possibly can. Right, so that's, I mean, shelter is something we overlook because unless you are homeless on the street, you have one. 
We don't really think about the need for shelter because I'm sitting in my office, which is part of my home right now, watching fish swim around in their shelters that are tanks. My dog's here at my feet. He's all nice and warm. It's kind of cold today. And my feet on him. Right? A shelter is a kind of a given, but take care of it. But then the other thing is, remember, you may have to leave. Where will you go if you have to leave? If you don't know the answer to that, then you're not prepared. And if you think, well, I'm staying. Okay, well, you tell that to the person in California that I saw their house up in flames today. What are you going to do? You have a massive forest fire heading your way. You're better with a garden hose? Good luck. You know, that's, that's you know, if, the, if you, you think you're going to fight off a massive forest fire with a garden hose, we're back to Edward Deming. Learning is not compulsory, and neither is your survival. You should have learned that doesn't work, but if you choose to not learn that lesson, you may end up dead. So you have to have a place. Remember, when I was a little kid, that sheriff showed up at my door. He was not asking. I guarantee you, the way those guys were that night, they were trying to get out of there as fast as they could, too. They didn't want to be there either. And anything other than yes, sir, was going to roll to people being grabbed and pulled out. The door. You said that's wrong. You said that's wrong, but I'll give you another example of this, where it wasn't somebody with any real authority. It was me. I was doing underground construction for a period of my life, We were doing uh, cable TV, long-haul telecom, stuff like that. It was all in that kind of tech space. But when you put stuff underground, there's other stuff down there like electricity and gas. We hit, because it wasn't marked, a 8-inch poly gas main. As far as I know, it's about as big as the poly mains are, poly, you know, polyethylene. And uh, we drilled a hole right through it. And it was so much pressure that I was standing over it when we drilled a hole in it, teaching a guy how to run locate for a directional boring machine. And it lifted us about three foot off the ground before it vented gas, and gas started blowing everywhere. So we ran away, shut the machine off, called the gas company. That's what we're supposed to do. Being responsible about this, we started going, because this was right behind a bunch of houses. We started going door to door saying, you know, You, you might want to get out of your home for a little bit, go shopping or whatever, and we explain to them what happened. So we get to one, and it's like, this is the guy that, like, he's got his back windows open <laughs> and, like, a fan blowing in while the gas is blowing in his backyard. So we told him what happened, and he said, I don't have to leave, and you can't make me. I said, you know what, sir, you should go back into that easy chair I see there, and you should light up a cigar and blow yourself up. And his face went white. I'm like, I'm not kidding, dude. I don't care what you do. I'm just telling you, you have a giant gas lane blowing gas in your backyard. You might want to just get out for a little bit till the gas company gets here and figures out what to do about it. And he eventually did. Education, right? Yeah, education is different than learning. I guess he decided to learn that day because his survival was not compulsory. But his learning in that situation, if you want to survive, maybe was. So there are times when you just have to go. Next up, health and sanitation. My phrase, you know, I got a little bit more on this one because it's complicated, but I answer this with a phrase. Keep supplies, have a plan to eliminate waste, and get basic training. That's it. Like, there are things that can go wrong that you can provide first aid for. Have those things. If you have somebody with a specific condition like diabetes, you better have more than a week's worth of insulin on hand. Right? Or a high blood pressure medication or antipsychotic medication. Anything that's a maintenance medication, you have to have that on hand. It does not make sense for you to have the ability to set up a field hospital and do surgery unless you or someone that lives in your home or someone that will show up in a disaster knows how to do that shit. I had a guy that I know from high school, this guy failed bio. 
I mean, like, not complicated advanced placement biology. He failed, like, 10th grade basic biology. He bought this hospital stomp kit. He sent me an email about it. He started listening to my show way back. He's like, I'm all prepared for this now. I'm like, dude, you don't even know how to put a Band-Aid on. What are you going to do with that? He spent hundreds of dollars on it. So keep the supplies that you actually know how to use. Have a plan to eliminate your waste. I, I, I hate to break the news to you, but if you have a foot of standing water outside of your house due to flooding, your toilets are not going to flush. You need to be able to get rid of your poop and your pee. So have a way that you're going to do that. A simple way, it's gross, but it works, and it's better than piling it up in the backyard, is you get a five-gallon bucket, a bunch of trash bags, the blue stuff that you put in toilets for like RVs, and a toilet seat. Contract your trash bags, and you poop in the bucket, and you add blue stuff to it till the bucket's about half full, and you tie the bag up, throw it in another bag, tie it up, and hopefully eventually the you know waste disposal will be back to get it out of there. I'll dig a hole and crap in my backyard. Make sure you can dig that hole before you count on being able to do it. And by the way, is your kid going to go out there and crap when it's 13 degrees below zero and the power's out? And will you be able to dig a hole in the frozen ground that's three foot under the snow? I'm not saying you won't. I'm just saying you. I don't care how you do it. You better have a plan to get rid of your poop and your pee and your other waste. And if you don't, you can end up in a health crisis because of it. You end up with diseases and illnesses. By the way, food and water and energy tie into health and sanitation. The number one reason people get sick in a disaster is from bad water. Or a lack of food, or both. So make sure that's all integrated. So next, uh, this is a question I get all the time. How important is it really to own guns and store ammo and all that stuff? So I'm big on having some ammo stored up. I love having bulk ammo as a, as a sponsor, even for today. It just turned out that way. Don't plan it. Um, but I would say, if we want to just like break this question into parts, storing a shitload of ammo, like thousands and thousands of rounds, that's personal choice. It's probably not real important. You are not going to fight the Red Dawn War. You are not going to have the blue helmets coming from the UN trying to take you to a FEMA camp. This is not a thing. You don't need to worry about that. You are not going to be the nexus that the revolutionary guard revolves around in fighting back against tyranny. That is not why we store ammo. So storing a lot of ammo is probably not needed. If you do a lot of skeet shooting, you should store shotgun ammunition. If you do a lot of target shooting, you should store the ammo for that. Uh, what have you? I reload. I love having a good supply of ammo. It makes me happy. But it's probably not that important. How important is it to own guns and enough ammo so that you can use them for what they are and have the training to be able to use them if you need to be able to defend yourself? This is the dangerous thing about this answer. It is a huge it depends. You can go your whole life, and by the time you're old and gray, and you can live to be like a centurion, you're like 104, and like where you're like, I'm getting in the box, I'm quitting, I'm done, I'm out. I'm, and you could have never needed a gun in your life. You could have never needed a gun in your life. It could be completely unimportant for you as an individual. But the one time you need it, it might be why you don't become that old man. Security is the thing that we can do without for the least amount of time and the most amount of time at the same time. We could have no security in our lives whatsoever, walk through life blissfully, blissfully ignorant. You know, in the words of our quote, You don't have to learn this lesson. It's not compulsory. 
But your survival's not compulsory either. And it could be worse than this. You could be in a situation where resources become scarce, just where you are, just for New Orleans, during Hurricane Katrina. And people could come and rape your wife. I don't like making it that real, but it's true. And you know when people don't rape your wife? When they got shot in the face with a shotgun. I promise you right now, being shot in the face with a shotgun completely ruins the mood for raping somebody. And that might sound violent, and you might be new to this, like, man, this guy's. I thought he was pretty cool, but now, hey, you try to rape my wife, I will shoot you in the face. Maybe you'll get shot with a shotgun, maybe you'll get shot with a dreaded AR-15, the fully semi-automatic version of, I don't know. Whatever is most available to me, most likely you're going to get shot in the face with a .45 or a .357 SIG because it's what I'm most likely to be carrying at the moment. But you ain't raping my wife. You ain't hurting my grandkids. You're not hurting my son or my daughter-in-law. You're going to get shot and bit by the dogs and thrown over the fence because that's the way that it works. And there is a 99.9% chance that I will never have to make good on that promise. That is not a threat. That is a promise. If I end up in a situation where it is between protecting my family and, and shooting some scumbag in the face, they're going to get shot in the face. That is a promise. But there's a 99.9% chance. It's probably 99.9999999% chance. I will never have to shoot anybody in the face. I don't ever want to. I don't ever want to live for the rest of my life knowing that even if the guy deserved it, I took somebody's life. I don't ever want that burden. But that .00001% chance makes my answer to this question, how important is it to own a gun and have the training and knowledge of how to use it? The answer is extremely important. Because the one time you need it and don't have it, The consequences may be something either you don't get to survive or maybe you even wish you didn't. So that's how I answer that one. Next, what is the best way to be prepared for power outages? We kind of talked about this one already when we talked about energy, but it is a generator. It is a generator and a backup source of heat because your backup heat that uses electricity is extremely power hungry. But the number one way I would say if you want to be prepared for your power to go out is get a good generator somewhere in like the 7,500 to 9,500 running watts, a good amount of backup gasoline, an assortment of good heavy-gauge uh, extension cords, and splitters, power strips, etc., 60 gallons of gasoline, a backup heat source, and if you live in a place where heat is a problem, a window air conditioner, and then have a plan that is... When this goes down, procedures and protocols like security, this is the room or area or two rooms of the home that we're going to climate control. This is the time. You should already have a schedule. If the power goes out and we have to run a smaller generator because we don't have a great big generator like Jack, or we have a deep freezer and we have a, a, you know, two refrigerators and deep freezer, we can't run them all at once and run the other things, this is a schedule. This is gonna, this, this refrigerator runs for two hours, then this freezer runs for two hours, then this freezer runs for two hours, then they all don't need to run for an hour, and then it starts again, whatever that is. And then when you get all your shit, your, your generator, your cords and everything, don't, don't go shut the main off, right? You can do that if you want to. I used to tell people to do that, but then you gotta reset all your clocks and shit. I mean, this is just to make it where you know it'll work. Go unplug the devices that you're going to need to run. Run the power cords. 
Is the cord long enough? Does it reach? Is the generator really loud right there? If the generator's sitting in this place, will it be sitting in the pouring rain? Is, can you make shelter for the generator without asphyxiating yourself? Are you just going to have to live without power while it's raining and wait till it stops raining? You have to know that in advance. If you can provide shelter for the generator, uh, is there something you can do so that the sound isn't so loud in your house or it doesn't bother your neighbor as much? Get everything, run it when you, when you don't have to. Test it before you need it. And then we're like, you know what? We really could use one more power cord. Well, go buy that cord. It's easy to get right now. It will be hard to get when everybody's trying to buy generators and power cords and everything else in the middle of a, of a, a hurricane or a long, long, long track tornado outage or something like that. Or your car's been damaged by the storm and you can't even go. Get it now. Get it in place now. But that's it. Generator, backup fuel, backup heat, window air conditioning unit. You do that, you will go through most power outages and been like, hey, This was kind of cool. Now, if you can afford and justify a standby backup generator, especially if you have if you have natural gas service to your home, you really should consider doing this. Because now you don't have to worry about a propane tank and extra. You only you pay for the gas if you use it. And I'll tell you what, when I my, my crew drilled a hole in that gas main, everybody saw gas. Even with gas blowing out of the pipe, there was still pressure to all the services. The last utility. The last utility that will go out, I'm not saying it can never go out, the last one that will go out, widespread especially, is natural gas. So if you can do natural gas, standby generator, you're golden. You know, I live where I have to put a propane tank in, and it would be really expensive to put a big propane tank in, because that has to be so far from the house, and the line has to be 10 inches deep, and that's tenant, you know, that's rock trenching. So, you know, I have to think about it. I went with a portable solution. But a generator is the number one keystone prep, and then everything else comes around that. But heat, get a propane heater or get a kerosene heater, and if you have that with a generator, you're golden. Next, uh, how much food does a family really need to store? My view is that if you can't take the keys to your car, throw them in a drawer, and set a timer for 14 days and feed everybody in the house for 14 days with nobody really being that upset about anything, you're wrong. But that is your bare minimum is two weeks. And that is eating pretty much the way you eat every day. And I'll tell you what, with very few adjustments and a little bit of thinking, almost everybody's already there. So this is more of a plan. My, my real view, though, is you should be able to do really well for 30 days and okay for 60. I don't think you need a year's food. That is kind of like the gold prepper standard, and go a year. Um, I don't really think you need to do that. But 60 days. And then I think it makes a lot of sense to try to formulate a plan to get to 90. And you can get creative with how you get to 90. You can use foods, you know, I don't eat pasta, I don't eat beans, I don't eat rice, but I can use those in an emergency. I will use those in an emergency, you know. I'm not going to be worried about putting a few pounds on in an emergency. So if you can get to 90 days, and the reason for that is 90 days, and I learned this from my time where I worked with the insurance industry, it's like the standard uh, duration of time that is usually necessary for a person to put their life back together 
from anything from my house burned down to a job loss. Now, obviously, your house burns down with food in it. You've lost the food, too. So it doesn't cover everything. But if, if Dad loses his job and the family knows that we have enough money to pay the bills for 90 days, we have enough food to eat for 90 days, We have enough water to drink for 90 days. And then everybody can pretty much just keep going to school. Mom keeps her job, whatever. And everything will just be okay for 90 days. That usually gives dad time to like take a week off and get his shit together in his head. And hopefully, if he's really prepared, he already knows where he's going next. As far as who he's going to talk to, who he's going to network with. who he's going to. But within 90 days, not only should dad have a new job. That should be settled into his new job, gotten through the transition period. Like, Dad should be, if Dad's prepared, Dad should be able to do that in 30 days. But we don't prepare for the best case scenario. We prepare for the worst. And in the worst case scenario, if, if Dad's not a deadbeat and Dad's going to get off his ass and put his life back together, in 90 days, Dad should be up and running and operational. So if we know we can take, so that's kind of like, not only is that where I would like to be optimally for food, it's where I want to be optimally for cash reserves. I want to be optimally able to cut off in a two-income family, one income completely. As in, something happened, you're not even getting, you're not even getting unemployment. But I can cut off one side and 90 days that household can run and, and no one starts worrying about turning into Oliver Twist. May I please have some more gruel, sir? That just doesn't happen. You do that, and if you don't put your life back together, you are doing something wrong. I don't care if you have to Uber and Lyft drive and deliver pizzas while you look for something else. If you're in that situation, that 90 days now can become 180. We can, with the gig economy, pet sitting, whatever the hell you have to do. Like, my nephew, I'm so proud of him. He was talking about his wife's sister's husband, who's just basically, a, you know, not always taking care of things. And he said, and they live really well. These guys do well for themselves. And he said to me one day, if this it had been a situation they were in, and he was looking for a job, you know, but not really finding one. And Nick said to me, look, man, I would hate to do it, but if tomorrow morning... I had to be at a Starbucks making lattes for yuppies to make sure my girls had what they need. I would do it. If you're that person and you have a 90-day resiliency plan, there's almost nothing short of a cancer diagnosis or something like that that can derail you from putting your shit back to where it was. Um, next up, what is the most important yet least expensive item that most families, families don't have but should when it comes to preparedness? A plan, a documented plan, a documentation package is part of that plan, and that is all your financial information in one place, photographs of the most expensive things in your home that you would need to file insurance claims on if your house burned down, um, a book that has in it, like I said, all the contact information, financial information, everybody you would ever need to call or get in touch with during a disaster, all the means of getting in touch with them. I know they're in your phone, but your phone may have just been destroyed. In, in that book, there should also be three places you would go to if you had to leave your home and three different ways to get each one of those three places. So nine routes planned out. It's for free. You can do it on Google Maps. you got to spend the ink for the printer to print it out. Most of you can probably get away with doing it at work for free. They won't even get mad at you. And that book, a copy of that book should be in every vehicle. If you have driving age children and they have a vehicle, a copy of that book should be in their car, and you should have one at your house. 
And if shit goes crazy and you're separated and your wife is flipping out because something's going on like rioting, and you say, go pick up Debbie at school. You know how to get to the school. Yeah, I do. Then you're going to meet me at Rally Point A. I don't know where that is. Yes, you do. Pick the book out from underneath the car. Turn to page nine. The book should be the same in every vehicle. You change something, you print it out for all of the books and replace the pages. Turn to page 19. See that map? Go there. I'll be waiting for you. And then you should have three rally points on the way to that other that, that, that ultimate destination. If you get somewhere and the police say, keep moving, you can't stop here. You have three different places you can meet up. And if you do that, you will be able to get through almost anything and get back together so you can figure your shit out. And I, I can't go deeper into it than that. You, all you have to do is go to the survivalpodcast.com, type in documentation. I did that show back in the 100s of episodes, you know, nine, ten years ago. And I've run it as a rewind at least twice. If you put documentation in, you will find a version of it. I go through exactly how to do this. But it is free to have a plan. It is free to document everything. Uh, today, you know, everybody has a cell phone. You should take pictures of every expensive thing in your home. If there's a serial number on it, take a picture of that. And upload it somewhere in the cloud so that if, if, if everything burns down in your house, it might even, you know, if you want to be really organized, have a spreadsheet and all that, that's great. But if you don't have time to do that, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Just take pictures of everything. And that way you can make a good assessment when you're telling the insurance company, you owe me 100000 more than you say you do. Here's pictures of everything. Don't give me your shit. I mean, that's you have to be a hard ass when it comes to stuff like that. All right? Um, next... What role does gardening and homesteading and all this play in preparedness? And the answer is as much as you want it to. I don't think you need a garden to be a prepper. I don't think you need to be a homesteader to be a prepper. I don't think you need a house to be a prepper. You can be in an apartment and be a pretty good prepper. Because everything we talked about today is more important that, than that. The key in our lives, though, like I said earlier, the sum total of making this all work is lifestyle design with planning as much redundancy and resiliency in your life as possible. If I have a garden that produces food, I have another source of food. I also have healthier food than what I can buy in the store, so now I have healthier food going into my body. I'm going to probably have less health problems. If I'm taking care of a garden, I'm more active. I'm probably going to be physically healthier from the activity, but I'm also probably going to be mentally healthier from the activity. Plus, I'm going to have an additional skill set. Plus, I'm going to have a way that I can... Network better with my neighborhood because nobody gets mad when you give them free homegrown vegetables. So now I have a, just an immediate in with people around me. And I, it's probably something I like if I'm doing it. So I don't think it's important to be a prepper, but I, can, I think it can be an important piece of prepping. In some ways it can actually make prepping more difficult. If you have, like I have a duck flock, I have 22 ducks. Um... I have to keep a certain amount of food in reserve for them. If I don't have that food in reserve and I can't get more food for them, just like me, they need to eat every day. They can go for a while foraging. Sometimes of the year they can forage more than others. At some point I might have to start rationing their feed and eating them. So at least they have that resource. But I have three dogs. I'm not going to eat my dogs. I mean, it has to be the actual apocalypse. And I still don't know if I could do it. But i got to feed them. So there's certain things about homesteading that actually require you to prepare more. And there's certain things about homesteading that provide more for you. 
My belief is the best thing that we can all do for ourselves as part of lifestyle design, which is a component of preparedness, is turn our house from a liability into an asset. That either means we don't buy more house than we can afford. If we have a mortgage on it, we have a mortgage on it. Gary Collins was on last week. He's against 30-year mortgages. Gary's wrong about that when he tries to make it universal for everybody. I'm sorry. I have a mortgage on my home. I think my interest rate is 2.9%. If my financial advisor couldn't average me better than that with my money, I would fire my financial advisor. I would rather have that capital invested than have that capital inside my home. I also bought a house that's maybe 30% of what I could afford by the numbers. If, if I would have went to the bank and said, I want to know how much money can I borrow? I want to buy the best house I can. I could have got a jumbo load for like three quarters of a million dollars. They would have rubber stamp. Here you go, Mr. Spirko. Go spend your ass into oblivion. I bought a house for $200,000. So I have the financial reserves that if something went wrong, I could pull those reserves and then use those to cover the mortgage. But you should not be house poor. And when we do that, then we already are ahead of the game. And then when we start thinking, what can this house do for me versus what can I do for this house? That's where the homesteading comes in. And that was one of the very early themes of this show, taking your home from a house to a homestead. Something that provides for you instead of takes from you. So I think there can be a lot of good for homesteading and gardening and all that stuff, but you don't have to. You absolutely do not. Uh, next, why is debt elimination critical to the preparedness lifestyle? Well, I just defended a mortgage. Okay, if I have a mortgage on my home, and I have gone with a good, solid down payment on the home, and I have cash reserves, that debt is inconsequential to my life. It's inconsequential to my life. I am not going to end up in a situation where I can't sell that house, where I'm upside down on my mortgage. And even if I end up in a situation where maybe I couldn't sell it for what I owe on it, I'm probably better off staying there in that point because I can't afford to live somewhere else. In most instances, if I'm smart about how I buy and take care of my home, I'll be able to sell it for more than I paid for it. I wrote a book on it with Dustin DeFreest. I have sold houses in the middle of a recession at asking within a week, and made money on them. So if you do that part right, that is smart debt. When I say debt elimination, if you're carrying a balance on a credit card, you are wrong. If you have debt on something that is not worth the debt, you are wrong. And I don't mean in your mind. I mean, if you go buy a car, and you owe $20,000 on it, And if you had to sell that car today for eight for, for, for money, you could only get twelve thousand and you're eight in the hole in it, that is bad debt. If you have a car that you have eight thousand dollars worth of debt on that you can sell for fourteen thousand dollars within a week, I don't really care. It doesn't really bother me. The value of the asset exceeds the debt against the asset, then I'm okay with it. But consumer level debt is 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 Satan, and student debt is Satan. And the reason it's important to eliminate that is it destroys your life like cancer. And you start making bad decisions. And when you get into that level of debt, what people inevitably do is double down and go get more debt. And they just keep getting more. And then when they get to the point where they feel like, I'm never going to pay this off, well, what does it matter? I might as well borrow more while they'll give me the money. 
And it destroys marriages, it destroys lives, and it makes it impossible to do the things that you need to do. Most of the people are thinking, you know, I'd really like to get one of them generators for five, six hundred bucks, but I can't afford it. I bet you have debt. And I'm not saying to get more debt to go get a generator. I'm saying the reason you can't afford the generators because you have two or three credit card payments and a student loan payment. And you had the damn student loan so long, you might as well name it and call it a pet. Because your dog won't live as long as your damn student loans will. That's got to go. And the reason it has to go is it destroys your ability to prepare. Last question today. What is career resiliency and why should it never be overlooked? Career resiliency just means exactly what it sounds like. You have a next place to go before you need it. What's another quote I looked at today when we're talking about preparedness quotes? Oh, it was, uh, it wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. And it's amazing to me. I have people that like their life seems so prepared. And I said, well, what do you do for a living? I work for XYZ Company. Well, what do you do there? I'm a XYZ engineer. You know, whatever it is. Oh, what would you do if you got fired tomorrow? I'd be okay for a few months. Well, that's good. I'm glad you're that far prepared. Well, who would you interview with? I don't know. Aunt, wrong answer. You'd have a list of companies you would immediately be submitting a resume to if you lost your job. And you want that for a variety of reasons. One, because you can lose your job. But I find... With quality people, you end up in a situation I ended up in a few times. You don't lose your job. Your job becomes in jeopardy due to something like a merger or a buyout or some restructuring. Or your job's not really in jeopardy as far as keeping it, but it is in jeopardy as far as being the job you took and the job you want to keep. So when you're prepared to jump if you have to, and that kind of stuff comes down by the, the, the pike, and you're able to go out and start farming yourself out for potential new opportunities while you still have a job, it is much easier to get an offer from somebody when you have a job than after you've lost one. There is um, a taint on people that have lost a job, even when there shouldn't be. As I've been a hiring manager, and even when that person seems really great, there's always a piece of me like, well, Why? What happened? Now, sometimes there's an answer that's so good that I don't. I, I, it goes away. Like the company went bankrupt, and I'm not far enough up in the company to have been responsible for why it went bankrupt. And I just there is no company anymore. It's gone. And especially if I can look it up, and so and so company's gone. Like, yeah, okay. I don't care that you lost your job. But anything short of that, there's at least a little bit in the back of my mind going, I don't know. And the guy I might give the opportunity to, somebody that interviews for the same position, that's maybe 1% less and normally would lose out to that guy, but he has a job and the other one doesn't, I start leaning to the one that has the job. Because he doesn't have that, that, that stench on him of being fired, being let go. And I know it's not fair and I know it's not right, but it is a thing. And when you're prepared for this in advance, you get to jump ahead of that. Well, uh, I see that you work for XYZ Company. What are you doing over here? Well, we're having a restructuring right now. A competitor just bought us out. And maybe you know they're going to fire you, but what you tell me is, I don't think the job I have is in jeopardy, but I don't think it'll be the job I took in another couple months. I think I'm going to get moved into this other position. I really don't like the way this other company does business, and I thought I'd see what's available to me. I'm looking at a proactive individual that makes shit happen. I want that person working for me. I'm getting an opportunity to steal somebody before this scumbag company I'm competing against 
gets to keep them. I want you now. You see how that works? This is the type of resiliency that you have to build into your career. The other thing that goes into career resiliency is continuing to learn new skill sets, be an eternal student, even if it has nothing to do with the work you're currently doing. Because it's okay to bullshit on a resume, as long as you can do the thing you're bullshitting about. So if you've learned how to do certain things while you were doing a job, and you tell me that in a creative way, and I bring you in to interview you and say, well, can you really program Ruby on Rails? Because I don't know the come of your work. You say, yes, I can. Make this thing do something for me with Ruby on Rails. Huh, look at that. Some bitch. He can do that. I have a requirement for somebody that has that in addition to PHP and SQL. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And if I find out later that you bullshitted me, that you taught yourself how to do that with a Sam's guy in your room while you were working there and you never did it there, I don't care. I just want someone that can do the shit that I need done. That's career resiliency. Career resiliency is things like driving for Uber or Lyft or doing Rover or doing whatever the one is where you take care of kids or whatever, the nanny one or whatever, and having some sort of a side hustle. Because if you lose your job, you have that thing. You can either ramp it up or get by with it till you find something else. It's also like the way I think that Uber is so valuable is it gives you the opportunity to network. If you're an Uber driver and you talk to somebody while you're driving them, you say, what are you doing? They say, I'm in town on business, and they blah, 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 blah. Get their freaking business card. They'll give you one. Business cards are cheap. And it might be somebody that can help you in the future, but it also might be in the, the case. I mean, if I was an Uber driver, I would have a very organized business card Rolodex. And if I had two people I drove within a couple weeks of each other that I really thought needed to meet each other, I would not even tell them directly. I would send an email. Sam and Bob, I recently had the good pleasure to have you gentlemen in my vehicle. I don't know if you guys will hit it off or not, but Sam was telling me this and Bob was telling me that. I thought maybe you guys would appreciate an email introduction. If it works for you, great. If not, just ignore this. Thank you very much, Bill. See... Let's say Bill is going to college and Bill is going to want a job in a sector that Bob is in right now. And when Bill finally gets his degree, he emails Bob and says, remember me? Bob is going to go, shit, yes, I remember you. You tried to help me. Turned out that guy you put me in touch with was an idiot. But I understand why you did it. Send me your resume. See, that's career resiliency. You're always thinking about tomorrow, not today, not yesterday, tomorrow. Developing relationships and skills that further your marketability. And if you add that to everything else we talked about today, I'm not saying that you can't get knocked off. That you can't end up in a real bad way. I'm saying over 90% of the time, when you get knocked down, you're going to get up, dust yourself off, and go right back to your life. And that's as good as any of us can do. So I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I hope it is kind of the back-to-basics show uh, that helps everybody that I intended it to be. I think it's be a great one to share with people. I tried to keep the intro really short, so uh, you know it'll make that easier for people to get through the intro that never heard the show and maybe are not really sold on preparedness yet. And feel free to tell them, hey, jump ahead, do you know wherever number it turns out to be of minutes or what have you. Then it never hurts my feelings when you do that. With that, we have wrapped up another episode of the show. If you think this show is uh, valuable to you and you want to help support us, one of the ways you can do that, just do your online shopping at tspaz.com because most of you manage your lives similar to the way we talked about today. 
uh, you probably can afford stuff, so you probably buy stuff. And like most Americans, you probably buy a lot of your stuff online. When you do that, if you go to T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com, before you buy and start there, no matter what you eventually buy, you'll help us out. Today I have an item of the day for you. It's not a big prepper item. It's not a great big deal. It's a little cheap $6 thing. But I bet everybody in America either does or should use them. They're toenail clippers, which also clip fingernails, by the way. They're made by a company called Tweezerman. Now, why do I recommend these things? Well, number one, they're a multi-use item. I keep them in my tackle box. I keep a set of these in my toolbox. It's always something little that can be done. Uh, they belong in a first aid kit. Hangnails suck. You know, that little piece of skin hanging on. I mean, and, and being able to trim that off with a good quality pair that actually trims the right way instead of pulls and jerks. Uh, and, you know, putting a little bit of uh, antibiotic ointment or something on there is important. So it's good for that. Plus, you need to take care of your fingernails and your toenails. And this is what I found, for me anyway. Toenail clippers will cut my fingernails, but fingernail clippers will not cut my toenails. And I believe in redundancy, but I don't believe in duplication that's unnecessary. So I'd rather have two pair of tweezermans than one pair of fingernail clippers and one pair of toenail clippers. I'm not a vain person with a vanity kit, right? Uh, my other thing is I want something high quality that's cheap. A lot of times I'll buy high quality and expensive if I can afford it. I always say buy the best quality you can afford. Certain things I don't do that with. And it's because I believe in gnomes. I'm not kidding. I believe in gnomes. They're real. I've never seen one, but I know they exist. And they exist to steal certain things from me. Three, in fact. They exist to steal my tape measures, my Sharpie markers, and all pens, by the way, and my nail clippers. There are three things that disappear from existence in my home that I cannot explain. And I think the gnomes put them all in one place because one day I'll have none and the next day I'll find all of them. But until I find them all, I'm screwed. So when I found these, and I, I, this is what had actually happened, is I got to this point where the gnomes got all my fingernails and toenail clippers. I couldn't find any. My one pair in the, to the, the tackle box, I'd gotten wet in the salt water, and it was all rusty. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that sucks. And so I'm like, I'm going to go to Amazon. I'm going to find the best damn pair of these for the, for the cheapest money I can. I found these. I bought one pair to make sure. And when I, once I did that, I bought like a half a dozen of them. And that way, when the gnomes get them, I have a backup pair. But they're only six bucks. They're awesome. Check them out. You can find them at tspaz.com. And you'll find all these, everything I've ever bought on Amazon that was worth buying again, pretty much, I've done a review for. And you find a quality of value ratio and an honesty from me on my product reviews. I don't think you find anywhere else from anyone else. And if you use tspaz.com when you shop online, you help us no matter what you buy. So that's the easy way to support the show. That brings us to our song of the day today. I love this song. Anybody who's listened to this show for years knows that I have a special place in my heart that is dark and cold like the Grinch's heart, full of hatred for people that are bullies. Especially bullies in schools. And the only thing that I really think I have a darker place in my heart for, when it comes to bullies anyway, because there are some things you can do that makes, like, there's a darkness you don't even want to know about. But this is the special dark place for bullies. The only thing worse than, like, kids bullying kids in school is, like, parents bullying their kids. Because at least in school, the, kid, the other kids are stupid. All kids are stupid. We were stupid when we were kids, too. And they have an excuse for being stupid. It's called youth. And additionally, they don't know better. And at least it's a kid on kid. Even if the other kid's stronger, bigger, whatever, it's kid on kid. An adult bullying a child, 
I mean, you just need your ass kicked in a special sort of way. That's what this song's about. It's a lot happier side of it, though. In other words, it's the incentive not to. It's by a guy named Jake Owen, who I've never heard of before. It's called Nothing Grows in the Shadows. And it talks about how we just... And what I really like about it is it doesn't actually call on, for instance, the children that are bullying other children to necessarily be that kid's friend. There are people you just don't get along with. There are people that you're just diametrically different from. There are people that you just don't want to be associated with. And I'm going to say it, there are people that are just weird. You know, it's just like they give you a vibe like, I don't want it. No, no. But almost everybody can find a friend or two. And what this song really calls on the kid level thing to do is just leave them the hell alone and get out of their way and let them figure their shit out. Because I do think it's kind of a challenge to try to force kids that don't want to be friends to be friends. I don't think we should try to force any relationships that don't want to be there on either side. But man, we can leave each other the hell alone. That's the non-aggression principle right there. When he gets into the parents, though, what he's talking about is these parents that like beat up on their kids at a sporting game or something for not trying hard enough or whatever. And that's just a level of stupid. And there's a whole bunch of different ways that parents bully their kids. You should never need to bully your kids. You might need to be tough. I'll put a foot in an ass. I promise you, right now. And I did it with my son, and I do it now with my grandson. And as my granddaughter gets a little older and a little bit more able to understand, the foot will go in the ass when necessary. But there's a difference between a foot in the ass, Red Foreman style, and bullying. Bullying is, is using the strength and advantages you have to literally intimidate the other person into doing whatever it is you want them to do, either for your amusement or because you just think it's the right thing to do. There's no place for it. None at all. And then this song ends with an irony. It's probably a made-up irony. But the message of it is pretty damn solid. And I could sum that irony up. You'll have to wait to hear it in the song with, be careful of the toes you stepped on them. Because they may be connected to the ass you need to kiss tomorrow. With that, it's been Jack Spierka. That's, that's a good preparedness advice, too, right? There's that. It's been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Hey, you kids. Bullying the kids down at your school One of these days you're gonna grow up and be ashamed Who gave you the right to decide who is and who ain't cool Who can sit at your table and be on your team and play your games Let them shine, shine like a diamond Give them time And you'll find their snow-covered roads God's light Shines for everybody So get out of His way Nothing grows in shadows Hey, you fathers, screaming at your kids from the bleachers. 
saying quit acting like a sissy. Suck it up and win. Maybe you ought to stop and think about what you're teaching. Yeah, you talk about a loser. Well, I don't think it's them. Let them shine, shine like a diamond. Give them time, and you'll find their snow-covered roads. God's light shines for everybody. So get out of His way. Nothing grows in shadows. Well, I ain't saying I ain't been a shadow myself. A dark cloud that rained on somebody else. I learned a lesson that I need to tell. The doctor that saved my mama's life helped beat her cancer, made sure she got well. Was a kid I went to school with all my life. Man, I used to give him hell. Let him shine, shine like a diamond. Give him time, and you'll find there's snow-covered roads. God's alive. Shines for everybody. So get out of his way. Nothing grows in shadows. Oh, get out of his way. Nothing grows in shadows.